Well, hello. This is Joe, and this is Strange Sound. I'm Joe. <laughs> Thanks for being with me. Appreciate it. Glad to be back. Here we are, another week. May Day. I'm recording this on May Day, so workers unite. May Day. Fists in the air. Feet on the street, as it were. Anyway, glad to be with you. Um, standard disclaimer, as usual, the views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They do not represent the views of anyone in my family or my friends or my co-workers or my employer or anyone living on my street or anyone who happens to pass me on the street or people who like my posts on on uh, social media or people who dislike my posts on social media. Nobody's opinion is represented here except mine. So there we go. Just exercising my First Amendment right to free speech that everyone so enjoys. Everyone's, well, second favorite amendment. I think their favorite is the probably the Second Amendment. <laughs> but... We've talked about that on previous shows, so I won't go into that in detail. Anyway, hope everyone's doing well out there. Hope everyone's getting your shots. Everyone got your shot? Hope so. Go out there and get it. It's free. Doesn't hurt a bit. It's great. No problem. I had the Pfizer. Two jabs. Sore arm a little bit afterwards. Big deal, right? I've had sore arms from like lifting things. Otherwise, just fine. No problem. Just get it. Peace of mind. I actually feel confident enough to like walk out of my house without a mask now. Um, I still wear a mask. Wear recommended, you know, in stores, inside, uh, when there's other people around, that sort of thing. Um, but And I follow the guidance because, you know, they know more about this than I do. And it is a pandemic. And people all over the world are dying particularly in places like India and Brazil. It's horrific. And mostly due to the fact that those two nations are are um, ruled by um, boneheaded leaders um, who are really into their own popularity and uh, are proto-fascist. So there we go. Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, just two of my very favorite people in the world. Yes, not, I should say. Anyway, as is my custom, I am going to read my blog post for the week, my furious rant, which I post at big-green.net. If you follow the blog link, then uh, you'll find my political rants category. Those are what I call my furious rants, but they're under <laughs> they're under the moniker, the category title of political rants. Um, there's also some very silly posts there that have to do with our band Big Green, which is a whole other thing, so I won't, I won't even get into that. But uh, I am going to, as is my custom, um, read my latest blog post, which this week is about foreign policy, actually, um, which is kind of strange because this has been kind of a domestic policy week <laughs> with the rollout of, you know, with Biden's um, address to Congress, uh, the equivalent of a State of the Union, but not a State of the Union, a joint 
um, joint um, session uh, address of some kind, which they always have trouble with naming, but whatever. Uh, he's mostly was mostly talking about domestic policy, which is kind of his sweet spot now. Um, and I won't get into that right away, but uh, what I wanted to do is read this post and comment on it. This is entitled, Living Through Another Cuba Obsession, April 30th, 2021. And it goes something like this. The Biden administration has essentially balked on its Cuba policy, saying through its State Department spokesperson that they are reviewing the policy set by their grisly predecessors and that they will, in essence, get back to us. Meanwhile, the people of Cuba are slowly dangling in the breeze, still under sanction from the global superpower 90 miles to the north, no relief in sight. I'm not surprised in as much as this administration made... <laughs> I have a typo in here, I'm sorry. I'm not surprised in as much as this administration made no pretense of departing from the imperial line when they were trawling for votes last year. As I've mentioned many times, Biden's campaign website contained almost no foreign policy position papers, and the ones they did post were bank shop policies related to some domestic concern. The utility of that strategy is obvious for the left. There's nothing to push back against for the centrists and right-wing Democrats. If they fill in the blank with what's in their heads, they won't be far from wrong. Ned's Price it's worth listening to what the State Department spokesperson said about Cuba a few days ago. That was Ned Price, by the way. Aside from the ongoing policy review process, he said U.S. policy is focused on, quote, democracy and, quote, human rights, that it's up to the Cuban people what they think of their own leadership succession, and that U.S. citizens, quote, tend to be the best ambassadors for freedom in Cuba. Really? Let's interrogate these notions for a few moments. First, democracy. The United States is selective in its application of this principle. There is zero democracy, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, and yet they are not under sanction. Far from it. They get arms, trade, you name it. Cuba, on the other hand, has been under punitive sanctions my entire lifetime, and I am 62 years old. I know inconsistency is a weak charge against states and politicians, but the very idea that we think of democracy as a value is simply ludicrous. No, Cuba is not a formal democracy along the lines of the U.S. As I've mentioned in this blog before, any comparison between Cuba and the United States is meaningless because of the power-wealth differential. But honestly, look at what the U.S. considers democracies in the Western Hemisphere, like Haiti. Do ordinary people in Haiti have more of a voice in public affairs than citizens of Cuba? Yes, they have elections, but their elections are meaningless. The head of the only mass-based political party in Haiti, Lavalas, was deposed from the presidency twice by the military. I'm talking about uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide here. With the tacit or open support of the United States. Haiti is shot through with investment capital from overseas. Once the source of much of France's wealth, the country cannot support itself as its agricultural and industrial base has been reconfigured by foreign powers. Cuba's liberty is in its independence from the United States, not in electoral politics, which never developed beyond a certain point in the shadow of 60 years of sanction, assassination, 
terrorism, and attack from El Norte, which is why Ned Price's comment about U.S. citizens being, quote, the best ambassadors for freedom in Cuba, unquote, is so infuriating. We've done nothing but strangle them for six decades. Where's the freedom in that? Love you, Joe. Okay, that's my furious rant for the week. It's on the subject of Cuba, of course. You heard it. I said it, and you heard it. (laughs) What do I have to add to that? Well, plenty. Uh, But one of the things I was thinking about uh, after and during the time I was writing that and while I was thinking about it earlier this week was just the notion of Americans really not understanding the world from the perspective of the people that we um, tend to oppress. And that's because, as Americans, we do not have any familiarity with the experience of having nations much stronger than us impose their will upon us from the outside. We just don't have any knowledge of that. We've never experienced that as a nation. So when we look at Cuba... Cuba has had nothing but that experience. They've been they've had the American knee on their neck for 60 years and really longer, right? I'm talking about their essentially their independence period when they overthrew the US imposed dictator Batista back in the year I was born, 1959. Not to put too fine a point on it. So my entire life through has been a process of ratcheting up tension with Cuba, trying to overthrow their government from the very beginning. And mind you, this was <laughs> the revolution took place during the uh, waning years of the Eisenhower administration. So um, you know, I was I was born in I was born in like the last two years of the Eisenhower administration, and. Um, the, the Cuban revolution was born about the same time. (laughs) And this was a period when we were involved in overthrowing governments all over the world when we didn't like what we saw or inhibiting governments from proceeding or, you know, taking office or, or taking charge in their country, you know, if we didn't like them. We did this in Iran in 1953, and that was, you know, one of the first acts of the Eisenhower administration. Uh, Operation Ajax, I think it was called. We overthrew the uh, democratically elected government of Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 and um, ensured that the Shah of Iran, Riza Pahlavi, took power. I've talked about this in previous episodes, and, you know, again, I'm not an expert. I would check with other people on this but i think you'll see that uh, you know this is this is pretty standard fare so i mean the eisenhower administration did that the eisenhower administration the following year overthrew the arbenz uh, regime in in guatemala which had taken power um by you know democratic vote we didn't like them because they were talking about nationalizing some of the resources or at least beginning to move in that direction. United Fruit was not happy about that. Um, 
And so we got rid of our bends <laughs> and launched them into a long series of military, essentially military governments um, and war on their own people that cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans over the years. Um, same thing in Iran. I mean, Iran, you know, suffered under the Shah, finally off the Shah in 1978, 79, and has been under attack from us ever since. I mean, they were under attack while they had the Shah too, right? So, I mean, you have to consider Cuba in the context of what we were doing sort of left and right in other nations as well, pretty much all around the world. I mean, we did the same thing in Iraq. In Iraq, there was a revolution um, that ousted the king. It was uh, King Hussein in 1958. Uh, the Qasim uh, was Colonel, I think, Colonel Qasim took charge uh, at the head of a junta that was running Iraq, and they had kind of a generally sort of leftist program. They were sort of leaning towards the Soviets a little bit, and of course the Eisenhower administration was losing their mind over this. Um, so they, you know, uh, I think it's pretty uncontroversial that they had worked their little magic, you know, through the CIA to get um, a certain cadre of of Iraqis to attempt to assassinate uh, Qasim. They failed. This was in the late 50s, 1958, I think. They failed. Uh, actually, one of the assassins was, one of the attempted assassins was, uh, assassins was uh, Saddam Hussein. And at the time, he, you know, he took a shot at Qasim, missed, ran to his Hometown of Tikrit, a hidden spider hole, kind of like he did in uh, 2003, 2004, and uh, was spirited away, uh, was put up by the CIA in Cairo and in Beirut. In fact, they complained about having to put him up, put him up for a while. Uh, ended up returning when the Ba'athists took power in the early 1960s and was their torturer-in-chief until he ended up running the country. I've gone through this sequence of events before. You can look it up. Just take a look. You'll see. I'm not making this up. But, you know, yes, we skullfuck them. Um, so, naturally, we were trying to skullfuck the Cubans. We obviously majorly skullfucked the Vietnamese, um, funding the French War, um, and I'm really just talking about the Eisenhower administration. That funding began, I believe, with the Truman administration. They started pouring money into uh, maintaining Vietnam as a French colony. And when that failed badly, um, we put the pieces in place to you know, create a separate government in the South based on what was established at the Geneva um, the Geneva Convention in, in uh, 1954 when the Geneva Agreement was drafted. Um, I won't go into detail about that, obviously, because <laughs> it's a very complicated story. But suffice to say that we managed to stop the Vietnamese from taking control of their own country. We created a, a cadre of leaders and mostly mostly military leaders, as it turned out later on, um, that ran South Vietnam as a separate country, even though it wasn't. 
It was never a separate country. But we uh, we did that. Uh, so yeah, Cuba <laughs> was another country that we you know we skull fucked and we kept trying to overthrow their leadership through the early 1960s into the mid 1960s. We kept doing it. You know, we would support we would support cadres of basically terrorists, um, Bosch, Kareles, um, who was the guy who tried to blow up, who actually succeeded in blowing up um, that airliner can, that was carrying the Cuban Olympic fencing team um, sometime in the 70s. I forget what year it was exactly. Uh, lost with all hands. Blew it up. He ended up um, going to live in Miami. And relatively unmolested. Something of an embarrassment, perhaps, but, you know, welcomed as a hero. Like other terrorists have made their way there. Um, same thing with Haiti. I mentioned Haiti in the uh, in the blog post. And, uh, yeah, you know, we did the same thing, basically. Um, supported a coup regime and, uh, you know, uh, welcomed their torturers uh, <laughs> when when the whole thing fell apart, more or less. Uh, so I, I, I guess my main point is in order to understand the perspective of Cubans, what we need to do is just remember the degree to which we've been involved in shaping their history as a superpower can, a superpower that is 90 miles to the north of them, a superpower that has enormous weight to bring to bear on them as a small country, an independent country that's been under sanction, crippling sanctions for 60 more, 60 or more years. And that we've extended the sanctions in a way that makes it difficult for other nations to do business with them as well. So we punish other nations for doing business with them. Now that's the reason why they're a garrison state. I think, I think we know that. Now, do we know what would have happened to Cuba if we hadn't skullfucked them from the beginning? No, I don't know. There's no way to know. It's a counterfactual. But it might have been worth a try. Right? What if we just let them develop on their own without being harassed? We used to complain about them helping helping uh, independence or revolutionary movements in other countries. Well, we did the same thing. We were constantly funding despotic governments in Latin America, in Southern Africa, in Northern Africa, in uh, in other parts of the of the world, certainly Asia. Um, so we were always doing that, and just like we were complaining because the Cubans were using their limited resources and their limited ability to project power to help resistance movements that were mostly fighting against despots that we supported or we even installed. We did nothing but complain about that. And we punished them, you know, throughout the entire the entire stretch of decades that I'm talking about here. I mean, what would have happened if we just left them the fuck alone? Would they have had a more open system? if they weren't under constant siege from a major military power, not only major military power, 
but the strongest military power in the world. A military power that that actually conducted an invasion of their island in 1961 and threatened to blow them up and ran a terror campaign against them, tried to murder their leadership. But now we complain that they're not now we complain that they're not um, democratic enough, that they don't allow for, you know, multi-party democracy in Cuba. Okay, fair enough. But mind you, <laughs> they've been under attack. They're a garrison state because they've been under attack. And I can tell you this much. If you're an ordinary person, and you're living in Cuba, you're living a lot better than if you were an ordinary person and you're living in the Dominican Republic or you're living in Haiti or you're living in Guatemala or you're living in El Salvador or any other country that we've had outsized influence on. Decisive influence on who runs these countries in more ways than one. And I won't go into detail, but there's just no question that we've had an outsized influence on how these countries are constructed, what their economies are like, you know, who's running the country consistent, consistently. Sometimes through direct military invention, in, intervention and sometimes just through, you know, the enormous pressure of being a superpower and an economic behemoth. You know, we don't exactly walk around on tiptoe, folks. And the fact that the Biden administration can sit here and kind of say, well, you know, we don't like the way they handle themselves. And, you know, Cuban people should have a voice. And, you know, okay, that's kind of a bank shot way of saying, I mean, do they say that about Saudi Arabia? Do they say that about, uh, do they really say that about Guatemala? I mean, they, they support like Juan Guaido in Venezuela. Okay, well, he wasn't elected by the people. So how is that democratic? I know they don't like Maduro, but Maduro won his election. I know they don't like that, but that's just the way it is. They don't like him. And maybe he's not a good leader. There's plenty to criticize. He's certainly not as charismatic a leader as his predecessor, Chavez. But that's not why they don't like him. They don't like him because he represents a movement that they disagree with. It cuts against their strategy for the region. They don't like it when people use their own resources to you know, somehow benefit some underserved community within their own borders. They don't like it. That's probably the most consistent part of American policy, certainly in Latin America. We tend to like despotic regimes better, ones that allow for very little restriction on foreign investment and repatriation of profits um, that are made off of resources or labor or whatever that's within the country. We don't like Bolivia. We don't like Venezuela. We don't like Cuba because they don't let us do that. They don't just drop their border and say, come on in, run everything, buy everything, tell us what to do. It's got nothing to do with democracy. Give me a break. Saudi Arabia democracy? 
is Egypt a democracy? We send them billions of dollars a year. Is Egypt a democracy? No, it isn't. Yeah, they have votes, but it's not a democracy, and you know it. They attack any time that there's a prominent, you know, uh, an influential opposition party, they knock it down. That's what they did with the Muslim Brotherhood because that was the only organized opposition there was. And they throw people in jail when they disagree with them, when they disagree with the government. So please, don't lecture people on democracy. Of course, the Biden administration is going to do this because that's what they're made of, okay? This is not a huge departure from the Trump administration. On foreign policy, as I've said before, yes, it's the return of the blob, but the default position of America has always been the same, even through the Trump administration. At the top, there was kind of a loose cannon who would do uh, unpredictable things like make friends with Kim Jong-un and that sort of thing. Those were the only departures. But that wasn't followed up on by by the the sort of supporting um, bureaucracy that runs American foreign policy. Because America is an empire, and it takes a lot of people to run it. It takes an entire massive infrastructure to make that thing work. And that thing has always been oriented in the same direction. As long as I've been alive, and longer. They like running the world. <laughs> And they like who they like. If people are nice to them, if people let them, you know, allow our corporations to run roughshod all over them, then they're happy. It doesn't matter what kind of government you have. Yes, they'd prefer it if you had some kind of demonstration election once in a while and make it look like you're a democracy so that you don't embarrass us. But they don't really care. Do they care with Saudi Arabia? Is Saudi Arabia even a government? Isn't it more like a family business with too many nephews? Way too many? Too many princes? <sighs> so, uh, yeah, my I guess my general point is, you know, yeah, I'm pissed off at the Biden administration over their foreign policy, big time. But it's not a surprise. This is a bipartisan thing. You know, they support Guaido like... Trump did. It's just that Trump makes a big deal out of it. They're quietly leaving in place the things that they did in Israel, the things that they supported in Israel, like moving the uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, um, like uh, annexing the Golan Heights, recognizing that, breaking decades of international agreements on that. They're sort of quietly leaving that in place. Uh, which is pretty horrible. I'd say cowardly, but that suggests that they would want to do something different. I don't think they do. I think they're okay with it. So it's just something we got to keep an eye on. And again, you know, we <laughs> it's one of the things that we as Americans are not very good at. We, we're not very good at seeing the world from the perspective of a country that's weaker than other countries and that uh, is being oppressed by a major power that is many, many, many times more powerful than you. 
we're not very good at accepting the fact that sometimes things are that are broken cannot be fixed. Sometimes they can't be fixed. We always think there's a solution. There isn't always a solution. We're also pretty bad at the... Uh, we're, we also sort of cling to this dynamic that um, if someone is a bad actor like Putin, whoever is a, opposed to them, prominently opposed to them, is a good actor. Well, it's like Maduro and Guaido, right? Guaido is not a great Democrat you know, he's not small D Democrat. He's not, um, he's not a great champion of the poor. Um, he's a right wing politician with very narrow constituency that is supported broadly by external constituencies because he stands in opposition to Maduro, whom our government does not like. But we have a tendency to think, well, he stands against a guy we don't like, so he's a great guy. Right? It's like Alexei Navalny in Russia, right? He stands against Putin, who we think is a terrible guy, right? So Navalny must be a great champion of freedom. Well, he's kind of an ultranationalist, and he said some pretty horrible thing about mu- things about Muslims, and, you know, it's, he, he's... Look at his history. He's not a great guy. But that doesn't mean he should be attacked and killed and poisoned and put in jail. No, I don't agree with that at all. I say let him loose. He's got a right to be a bigot. Just like people have a right to be a bigot in in the United States and be elected to office. Doesn't make them likable. I wouldn't recommend supporting them. But again, there you go. It's because we can't, we tend to see things in, you know, black and white, right? If one guy's bad, the other guy's got to be good. <sighs> okay, well, I've droned on a bit. But anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message when you go to anchor.fm slash strangesound. You'll see the means of doing that when you go there. You can also send me messages... At Strange Sound Pod on Twitter. Or you can go to big-green.net, click on the contact link, and you'll find other ways of getting in touch with me. I will likely post this on Monday, and I will be back next week. I hope to hear from you. Let's turn this into a conversation. By all means, reach out. Be glad to play your uh, voice messages on the show if you are so inclined you can let me know in the voice message if you like or whatever i mean if you leave a voice message i would assume that i'm going to play some part of it on the show um send me uh messages i'll read them i don't know whatever you want to do i'm going to turn this into a conversation tell me i'm wrong tell me i'm right whatever (laughs) thanks for listening so glad you could be with me take care stay safe get your shot See you next time.